Welcome to another edition of What the Cross Means to Me, devotional program. This is your host, Rob Holt, coming to you from Life Radio. It is good to be with you as we contemplate fresh perspectives on the meaning of the cross. I am not a theologian, just a photographer who's been at it over 30 years. But if a picture tells a thousand words, then yes, I guess you can say that I preach to the glory of our Creator by capturing and sharing what the Creator has created. My mission is to share the gospel through my imagery, the spoken word, and the written word. This program fulfills the spoken part, and the imagery utilized for this devotional are of a singular cross on a lonely hill shot over a two-year period. The written word for this program is from a book I published about that cross collection. It matches 30 cross images with 30 original essays from a wide spectrum of Christian leaders sharing their insights on the cross. The book shares the same name as this program, What the Cross Means to Me. Each week, I share a devotional inspired by the name of one of those cross images and ponder the wider meaning of the cross through the lens of Scripture. This week's devotional is inspired by the cross image entitled The Vigilance, which is another surreal image in the cross collection. It shows a white reflected cross against a sky of compelling gradation. The foreground is nothing but rocks, the gray kind of rocks that look like they just got pulled from the deep ground because they were. The kind of rocky landscape you would expect to see at Golgotha. The kind of rocky area with no grass that lets you know that this image was shot after the groundbreaking, after they started to build the new school campus. Actually, my collection has three phases to it. Yes, there is a pre and then the post groundbreaking segments. And the third is that period after the construction started and just before the campus was completed when the school moved the cross to its second location. And that is where this image was captured from. It is the second location as opposed to the final location because soon after the school grounds opened, they moved the cross from its second location to the final location, which is the north end of their football field. But if I take a step back and recall the visit I took a few years ago to the cross and spent an hour or so shooting the cross at its final location, which means the cross collection actually has four phases to it. Pre-construction, post-groundbreaking, the second location, and the final location. The one big bummer about the second location is the orientation of the crossbars, meaning the face and back of the cross, which now face north-south instead of east-west. Why is that important? Well, the sun sets in the west and rises in the east, so I no longer could get the sun in the composition easily, just the side sky. That said, it is not the sky in this particular image that makes the picture surreal, even though it has this cool 
gradient thing going on. As I mentioned, I captured this about a half hour after sunset. So the top portion of the image is kind of dark and it gradually gets lighter as you view down the image and it keeps getting lighter and lighter until the light starts to take on hues of blue then light blue then pink and then amber what I was referring to earlier is that I received some negative feedback on this image which was for some people a little disconcerting and it is that there seems to be a rope hanging from the middle of the cross and at the end of the rope there seems to be the shape of a hangman's noose to some people to others it just looks like a regular noose and no I did not put it there and no I did not capture the cross that evening because of it I had just happened to have made time that day to come up and spend time at the cross and shoot I never even thought about it I didn't think of how others might interpret it during the time I shot it or by including it in the book. How did it get there? Well, when they moved the cross to the second location, they used the crane, which is what the rope was for, to connect the rope to the crane. And then they lowered it into its current position. And then it seems the workers simply forgot and left the rope hanging on the cross. Now, why the reason for the name The Vigilance? As I mentioned, I didn't think of how others might interpret it at first when I included it in the book, but later, something about vigilante justice, the kind you see in spaghetti westerns, came to mind. But especially, the mystery of the cross came to mind. The sacrifice Jesus allowed, which protects us, those who believe, from the justice of God. But the word vigilance has many varying definitions and applications. It is a noun that is defined as the action or state of keeping careful watch for or about. But the word vigilance has many varying definitions and applications. It is defined as the action or state of keeping careful watch for or keeping careful watch about. One is like a sheriff or an officer constantly aware and watchful to observe someone breaking the law or looking for somebody who might need help and or it, it could mean that they are persistently pursuing a fugitive but for me it has a similar but slightly opposing application in Isaiah 53 2 it says God looks down from heaven on all mankind to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. In Ezekiel 34.11 it says, For thus says the Lord, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. The Bible says that God wills or wishes that none should perish, meaning none should end up in hell. And Jesus gave it his all, even the horrific and brutal death on the cross, to allow someone, anyone, access to the bridge to cross over from death to life. Jesus also gave us the Holy Spirit, who, in the name of this image, is ever vigilant, ever seeking and always prompting 
individuals to turn from the misery of their sins to the joy that comes from dwelling with Christ as their Savior. Regarding today's devotional, this is one of the last images in the book, what the cross means to me. And I find it appropriate that this devotional helps wrap up the entire premise of the devotional series and the book in that it is all because of the cross. Yes, it was a miracle that Jesus came into this world through a virgin birth. And the entire story of Gabriel's encounter with Mary, Joseph, Elizabeth, and Zechariah is amazing. And the dichotomy of the son of the creator of the universe and king of the Jews being born in a cattle stall is and was so moving to the heart. And yes, there's a lot to learn from not just the Magi, the royal scientists from the East coming to pay homage, but also how the lowly, poor shepherds were invited by angels to pay their respects as well. And yet, this was just the beginning, as the newborn baby cannot fulfill its mission just by being born. Jesus would have to grow up, start his ministry, call disciples, heal the sick, cast out demons, challenge the religious leaders, raise the dead, and more. Just a part of his mission. The real mission, coming into fruition, was the symbolism of the entry into Jerusalem on a donkey. The initiation of the Lord's Supper, the passion of the Garden of Gethsemane, the shame, beating, mocking, spitting, whipping, torture, and the crown of thorns was still not the realization of the mission, although very close. No, all of it, from the time the Spirit of the Lord overshadowed Mary, was leading to the point where the Romans began to drive the stakes into his wrists. And yet, that was still not the end of the mission. I agree it was significant, and we can learn so much by meditating on what Jesus said. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Or, Today you will be with me in paradise. Or, Woman, behold your son. And to the disciple whom he loved, Behold your mother. Or, When he said, I thirst. And all the while, All the sins of all the humans, Across all of time, And into the future, was placed in and on Jesus, leading up to his beloved father, decoupling and completely abandoning him. Leading up to when Jesus said what most people feel is the true fulfillment, several hours later, when Jesus uttered the phrase, It is finished. And yet, while his lifeless body still hung on the cross, the covert mission was just only about to be realized. It wasn't realized yet. Why? Because Jesus went into the realm of Lucifer and retrieved the keys to death, hell, and the grave. Now we have a clear focus on the plan of God. And yet, Jesus was not done. He rose from the grave with some sort of electromagnetic interatomic energy and then appearing and ministering to his disciples and many other Jews in the greater Jerusalem area. And yet those 40 days led up to the final commission to his disciples and the ascension into heaven. 
now we can look back and have an understanding of God's desire to restore a right relationship with him through the death and resurrection of his beloved son, Jesus Christ. Of course, the resurrection, ministry, and ascension could not have happened without the cross. It reminds me of one of my favorite quotes, this one by William Penn, which says, No thorns, no throne, no cross, no crown. The crown? Yes, because even past the ascension, the mission of Jesus continues at the right hand of the throne of God and will return to earth someday. The point is, the whole plan of the gospel, from the Garden of Eden, the miracle of the Nativity, the ministry of Jesus, and his passion was all leading to the cross. Everything after, the resurrection, the ministry of his resurrected body, the ascension, and his second coming, could only have happened because of the cross. The entire story of salvation of humankind is all because of the cross. I see how crosses on church steeples and on necklaces are many times artistically pleasing to the eye. However, many believers feel that what the cross means is found in its ugliness. Did you catch that? I feel that issue encapsulates the theme of the book, and this conundrum validates this perception. Addressing and answering the main question of the entire book, what does the cross mean to you? I spoke fairly deeply in a previous devotional about how some crucifixions, maybe the kind you hang on the wall or on your necklace, show a fairly intact and attractive Jesus hanging on the cross. There's a little bit of blood on his forehead, you know, from the crown of thorns, some blood on his hands or wrists, some on his feet, and of course, on the side where the spear pierced him. But yet, I have not seen a crucifixion where the artist tries to fully impart the look of the crucified Christ that we read about in the biblical accounts. I suspect that art would be very unsellable. It would be very disconcerting on someone's wall. I recall an essay by Bonnie Keane who tried to convey a bit of this perception when she said, There he hung, drenched in sweat, the joints of his body agonizingly pulling apart, grasping for breath. But the accounts in the gospel paint an even more horrific and violent set of circumstances Jesus had to live through. The shame of being spit upon by the Jews and then even more shamefully by the Gentile Romans. Then to have the Romans strike his head and body with a rod over and over again. Then blindfolded, being hit with fists, and then his beard literally pulled out and all that just before pushing in a crown of thorns into his cranium. And then, wow, yes, and then they whipped Jesus with a whip that had hooks and serrated metal tips such that when they pulled it out to be ready for the next strike, it pulled out pieces of his skin, muscle, and sometimes tendons mixed with pieces of bone. This was not just applied to his back. The whip was designed to reach around to the front of his chest, legs, and groin area. How he survived this is incredible, and yet it was just the end of one phase, as phase two was for Jesus to carry the wooden cross, estimated to be well over 100 pounds, 
over and up what we now call the Via de la Rosa path. As you recall, Jesus did not have to finish the full trek as Joseph of Cyrene finished carrying the cross to the hill that we call the skull or Golgotha. It says in Isaiah 52:14 that many were horrified by the sight of you. He was so disfigured that he no longer looked as a man. Many were horrified by the sight of him, meaning he was not only beat and tortured, he was beat and tortured to the point of not being recognizable as Jesus, and more than that, he was not recognizable as a human. Your imagination nor mine can fully fathom what he must have really looked like or went through. And yet, I contend that everything I just described was not the worst of it. What do I mean? Well, Jesus was born for a purpose and a plan. In John 1.14, it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. Moreover, it says in John 1.1, it infers that the two of them were together from the creation of the universe when it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And if you have any doubt, you can quote Jesus himself, who said in Jesus 17:5, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Colossians 1:15 claims that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And we can quote God on this when he in Mark 5.48 said, well, Mark said, describing this, the, the event, and a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, this is my beloved son, listen to him. This makes sense if you think about it. If God overshadowed Mary as his father, and we know that an offspring, a human offspring, takes on the blood type of the father, and if you couple that with what Moses taught us, that the Lord told him that the life or the life force of a human or an animal is in the blood, then God the Father was on a cellular makeup inside of Jesus. He was at the core of the cellular makeup of Jesus. In John 14.10, Jesus touches on this when he says, Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but from my Father who dwells in me and does his works. The whole point I am making by reading these scriptures is wrapped up in Colossians 2, 9. For in him, in Jesus, the whole fullness of the deity dwells bodily. As I alluded to, the connection was more than any of us humans none of us can commune with God like Jesus could because in the case of Jesus God himself communed with Jesus from the inside out they were intertwined at the molecular level as well as the spiritual level Jesus had God's blood type so what does this mean why do I go through all these scriptures and what point am I trying to make I want you to fully understand how beloved Jesus was the Father and how much Jesus relied on the communion with God and Father, it is almost impossible for any of us to fully understand the symbiotic nature of Jesus 
and who he was. Yes, fully God and fully man. My point is, as we move into a phase three of his life, is that after all the beatings, even the torture and the nailing of the body to the wooden cross and suspending his body in the air, feeling the real effect of gravity trying to pull your body through the stakes, yes, all that. After that, the real pain began. And that is just a part of the covert mission. Jesus was to be cursed by the very father responsible for his miraculous virgin birth. It is hard to get our heads around. The words of prophet Isaiah in chapter 53 that describe the ministry of the suffering Christ and tells us that it, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Can you understand that? I don't. Somehow the father took pleasure in bruising the son when he set before him that awful cup of divine wrath. How could the father be pleased by bruising his son were it not for his eternal purpose through that bruising to restore us humans as his children? But there is the curse motif that seems utterly foreign to us, particularly in this time in history. When we speak today of the idea of a curse, what do we think of? We think perhaps of voodoo, a witch doctor, an occultist, or a powerful medium. The very word curse in our culture suggests some kind of supernatural superstition. But in a biblical category, there is nothing superstitious about it. If you really want to understand what it meant to be a Jew, to be cursed, think the simplest way is to look at a famous Hebrew benediction in the Old Testament, number 6, 24 to 26. One which the Jewish clergy often use in concluding the benediction of a church service. If you really want to understand what it meant to a Jew to be cursed, I think the simplest way is to look at the famous Hebrew benediction in the Old Testament, number 6, 24 to 26, one which clergy often use as the concluding benediction in a church service by saying, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. But my purpose here is not to explain the blessing of God, but it's polar opposite. It's antithesis, which again can be seen in vivid contrast to the benediction. The supreme malediction would read something like this. May the Lord curse you and abandon you. May the Lord keep you in darkness and give you only judgment without grace. May the Lord turn his back upon you and remove his peace from you forever. When on the cross, not only was the Father's justice satisfied by the atoning work of the Son, but in bearing our sins, the Lamb of God removed our sins from us as far as the east is from the west. He did it by being cursed. In Galatians 3.13 it states, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. He who is the incarnation of the glory of God became the very incarnation of the divine curse. And more than just a curse, to place all the sins of the world in and on the body of Jesus on the cross. As sickening as that must have been for Jesus to experience the physical and emotional pain of all the victims the twisted thinking of the offenders. No, my whole point is Jesus survived the physical torture and the spiritual torture 
taking into himself all the evil of all time, but that at a certain point the holy God of creation, who cannot abide or cohabitate with sin, had to completely decouple the connection with his son Jesus. If I'm correct with my previous premise, then God had to sever the connection at the very cellular level in Jesus. The umbilical symbiosis was ripped apart, and Jesus, for the first time in his life, felt utterly alone. For all the things that Jesus felt by being a human, hunger, thirst, tiredness, pain, joy, grief, and even righteous anger, he never felt anything like this. As a human, in his weakest point, Jesus felt complete abandonment from God the Father. A separation so harsh and so deep that I contend it literally broke his heart. I am not the first to suggest this. Many biblical commentators and scholars have postulated that Jesus died of a broken heart. Remember, the Romans designed crucifixion to be one of the painful yet slowest way to execute a criminal. And yet, the Romans were surprised at how fast Jesus died. The beauty of the gospel was its ugliness meaning the horror of his passion and abandonment Jesus felt, is actually a source of encouragement for us. No matter what we, as frail humans, go through, including feeling abandoned, we now know that Jesus knows intimately what we feel and how it feels. And more than sympathy, Jesus has empathy, and his empathy goes far beyond that and allowed himself to be sacrificed for the sins and offense that caused our pain. If we are honest, we have offended and hurt others, even to the point of owing a debt for our sins, sins that we will not have to pay if we believe and accept the salvation afforded us by the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. Remember, being cursed and abandoned by God was still not the fruition of his covert mission. It was the very end of the beginning of the accomplishing of the mission. No, Jesus had to be counted as a sinner, evil and cursed, as the entry fee to enter the kingdom of Lucifer, returning with the keys to death, hell, and the grave. As Bonnie Keane concluded her quote, the one I referenced earlier, she says, The message of the cross is hope. Death has been conquered. Not only am I forgiven and free, but the ones I loved intimately, like my mom and my wife Verna, did not die when they passed away. They are alive in Christ, and I will be alive in Christ as well, meaning we will be reunited. The secondary question, after the question of what does the cross mean to you, is what the proper response to such a sacrifice, the love and the joy provided by Jesus? And my answer is, it is to trust. I agree and contend that if you really believe the good news of the gospel, there is no room for doubt. For those of you who have been listening to my devotional series, I often say that for the true believer, the realization that the worst case scenario we encounter in life is the best case outcome for those living in God's perfect will. This is the hope that transcends understanding and is the meaning of the cross. If you are a Christian, have you been living in this hope? If not, I suggest you meditate on the mystery of the cross and how everything Jesus did was to pave the way to eternal joy with his Father in both heaven and here on earth. Why? Because it removes doubt, fear, and pain. 
and provides the faith needed to endure every trial and go through whatever you may be called to for the kingdom of God. Knowing that the truth and joy of the gospel is that you are forgiven and a free person, go and share that joy with others who need it today. And if you are not a Christian, meaning you have yet to accept the incredible sacrifice Jesus made for you, then I suggest you read and meditate on what Christ did for you. Ask God to refine your soul and heal your heart. Ask Jesus to walk with you and fill you with his love and joy and hope today. And with that, go in grace and may God keep you in his perfect peace. Thanks for listening to What the Cross Means to Me, devotional program heard every week on Life Radio. If you'd like to view the image discussed, like this devotional image, The Vigilance, check out Rob Holt Inspires on Instagram. And if you'd like to see my other Verspirations, then check out Verspiration, singular, on Instagram. Support for what the cross means to me comes from the generous donations from people like you. To help this ministry share the gospel through imagery, please log on to RobbieHolt.com and make a donation. That is R-O-B-B-Y-H-O-L-T.com.